Amen. I want to introduce you to one of my favorite movies growing up of all time. It's not in my top 10 now, but it definitely was in my top 10 growing up. I want to have show uh, hands if you've ever seen this movie, Little Giants. Any Little Giants fans in here? Good. Way more than the first audience. I really had to explain the story to the first congregation, but let me try to sum it up for you a little quicker here. Uh, this is such a great movie between two brothers, that's the guys who are facing each other, one brother played by Ed O'Neill, he is a great football coach. He knows football. If you think of like what a football coach should say and look like and do, that's him. His brother, not so much, kind of nerdy, kind of a guy that doesn't belong on the football field, doesn't want to coach anything. Um, and he ends up putting a team together because his brother formed this team called the Cowboys. And the Cowboys, all the good local players were on that team. If you were good, you played on the Cowboys. Well, this other team over here, they don't look like they really belong together. And that's because they didn't. They were made up of all of these kids who were either discarded by the Cowboys or nobody else wanted. So here's a picture of what the Little Giants kind of looked like. This is the rad tad kind of bunch here who you would never think would be a decent football team. We have Icebox in the middle. Uh, she is one of the best players actually in the whole league. But her uncle, who coaches the Cowboys, didn't want her on his team because she's a girl. Sexist man. All right. Then you have over here, you have Hot Hands in the orange shirt. He's got his hands together. Uh, they call him Hot Hands, but he couldn't catch a football to save his life. In fact, against the Cowboys, he was going to have to put his hands in this like tar-like substance so that he could actually catch a ball. The funny thing is, during that game, he forgets that he has tar in his hands. He closes his hands together. He can't get them apart for a long time. Then you have one of the running backs. His name is Rad Tad. And in a running back, you're looking for a guy who you want to hit the hole and hit it hard, and you want to run the defense over. Well, Rad Tad, he did not like to be hit. So he would get the ball and run backwards so he didn't have to get hit by the defense. So that was the running back. And then we have Rudy. Rudy's my favorite. I can, I can, I'm one with Rudy, and here's why. Rudy, he was an offensive lineman, but instead of blocking, he would have rather eaten Cheetos. And that's me, man. I would rather eat Cheetos than do a lot of things in life. And that's uh, Rudy right there. And somehow this team, they come together, and it's one of those David versus Goliath movies. You see the first half, they're getting beat up by the Cowboys. No one can catch a pass. No one can can do anything. And then after halftime, you know, the speech is given and Icebox comes off. She's a cheerleader. Not anymore. She's back on the football field. And somehow the little giants end up winning the game. An amazing, amazing story. A great kids movie if your kids have never seen it. But I don't even think the directors know this, but the directors stole this plot from the Bible. Because here's the thing. When you read scripture and you read the people God uses or brings together and uses for their glory. It's always people that don't belong. There's always the outsiders, those who would never fit on an all-star team, so to speak. But God takes these unlikely people and does unlikely things for his glory. That's one of my favorite things about Scripture. No matter who you are, how you grew up, what you know about God, what your limitations are, God will take you, put them on a team, and you get to be a part of that winning team. And we get to see one of those examples of this story 
how God takes unlikely people and brings them together to do something good. And we see that in Acts 16. Uh, We're in the book of Acts right now, going through it chapter by chapter. This week is week 16, which means we're in Acts 16. So I want you to open your Bibles and turn to Acts 16 for me. And as you do, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm well aware that there's nothing that I can say or do apart from your spirit and your word that can change our lives. God, it's your word that can do in us what we can never do for ourselves. It's your word that both comforts and convicts. So God, whatever side of that fence we need to be on today, whether we need comforted through your word or convicted through your word, God, we ask today that you would do that. Thank you for this incredible story in Acts, we pray in your name. Amen. Acts 16, 11 through 12. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day we landed in Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. So Paul, he is on his second missionary journey, ends up going to Philippi. And what you need to know about Philippi is that Philippi is the first church Paul plants in Europe. It's a really close church to his heart. In fact, later he's writing a letter to this church in Philippi, and he's writing it from jail, chained to Roman guards, and he's reflecting on how much he cares about this church. So much so that this letter is preserved, and now we know it as the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Well, when you read this letter that Paul is writing to this church, you can't help but feel his heart for these people. Look what Philippians 1, 3 through 5 says. He says this, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. So he's writing this greeting of blessing to this church. And he's like, look, as you're reading this, just know how much I care about you. How much I love you. How much I thank you. How much you bring me joy. And the reason for this are the people in that church. He adores them. He loves them. They are partners with him in the gospel. What if I told you in Acts chapter 16, we get to know the first three people who join and start that church in Philippi. Three people, three unlikely people who you would not think would come together, but they do and they make an impact, not just in that area, but 2,000 years later now as we read the words that we're about to read. Three stories that we'll look at in sequence. Here's the first one. Back to Acts 16, 13 through 14. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we, thought, where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked to be her guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. So Lydia, we realize, is in a woman's Bible study, so to speak. 
It's on the Sabbath, so we think that she and the other ladies were Jews, gathered to look at the scriptures, praying together. And we are told right away this woman named Lydia, she is a merchant of expensive purple cloth. Now that means she was into fashion. She probably looked good. She probably looked put together. She was in fashion and she dealt with purple cloth. Now back then, purple dye was very expensive. So if you were working with purple dye and using purple dye, you would have probably been wealthy and influential. So in modern day terms, Lydia would be like a fashion mogul living in New York City. That's who she was. But she was also, we see, a worshiper of God. Again, she was probably a Jew in a Bible study with other women looking at the Old Testament. And what she isn't realizing is she's reading about Jesus. She just doesn't know it yet. Because in the Old Testament, it's pointing forward to a Messiah that would come. And Paul, he comes around and says, hey, what you're reading, let me interpret it for you. This person that you're reading about, the Messiah's name is Jesus. And he died for you, he rose again. And we're out here telling people about that. It's called the good news. And the good news is that God brought me here to, have a rela- to tell you to have a relationship with him. Of all the people, he wanted me to go to your prayer meeting to tell you. And it says that she listened. The Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She became a follower of Jesus. And in this moment, she became the first member of the Philippian church. What I love about Lydia is that you see right after she comes to know Jesus, what does she do? She serves. She opens her home in hospitality. You know you're following Jesus when as you're continuing to follow him, you can't help but love people and want to serve people and live selflessly. That is exactly what Lydia is. She's like, come on, just come into my home. I want to serve you. I want to show you hospitality. Lydia, she's the first person in the Philippian church. Now, Lydia's story is is a beautiful story because she was wealthy and well-off, and now she's in the church. She can influence people. Well, the next story is completely opposite. Look what happens here. Acts 16, 16 through 18. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that, that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money from her ma- for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God. They've come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of, name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. This is a completely, story to, a completely different story to Lydia's story. This girl is known as a slave girl, and the reason is that she's enslaved by two different forces. The first is a demonic force. There's a demon living in her and, and using her and doing things through her. And with her, she was able to tell the future. It's very demonic. Well, there is a person who saw that she could do this and ends up really kind of owning her as a slave and using her for his own monetary gain. So this woman not only is enslaved by a demonic force, she's enslaved by another person. And she's exposed and used for those kinds of things. She's trapped every single day. Here's Paul. He comes around and meets this woman and this demon in here just screaming stuff all the time. And though what the demon's saying is right, it's taken away from what Paul is saying. Every time Paul speaks, this demon is just screaming through this girl. Well, finally, Paul, it says he's exasperated. He's just tired of it. And he looks at the demon and says, get out. I'm done with you. <laughs> 
demon. He leaves, and this girl, now she's free. In the name of Christ, not only is she freed, so she doesn't have to have this demon, now she's freed to follow Jesus and actually have the true freedom that God gives all of us when we follow him. She's the second person now to be in this church of Philippi. But what about the master? What does he do now that his source of income is gone? Look what happens in verse 16, verse 19. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. This guy is so angry with these two that he has them beaten. And now they're going to be thrown into jail. You see, but here's the greatest thing about God. It doesn't matter if life is good or life is bad. If you're following Jesus, wherever he has you, he will move. He will speak. He will do incredible things if you just open your mouth, no matter where you find yourself. And Paul and Silas, well, now they're in jail, but they're not going to stay quiet. No, they know they have a role to play even in this. So look what happens. Acts 16, 22 through 24. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stock. So here's Paul and Silas. They're thrown in the jail. They're in there with the rest of the prisoners. And the jailer, he has one rule. Do not allow anyone to escape. Well, there's some foreshadowing for you, right? Verse 25. Around midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners, they were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. So imagine that you're in jail. Imagine that you never think you're going to get out. And all of a sudden an earthquake comes and the doors open, the shackles come off. What are you going to do? Not a trick question. What are you going to do? You're going to run. You're going to run fast. Well, not only are the doors open, the shackles of the jailer are sleeping. He has no idea it's happening. He finally, he wakes up, the earthquake happens, he wakes up and he sees the doors open, the shackles off and he's thinking, oh my goodness, it's over. Now in that culture, in that Roman culture, it was an honor and shame culture, which meant if you did your job well, there was honor there. You did your job the best that you could because you knew that was a great way for others to honor you and to show you a sense of value and worth. But the other side of that coin is a shame culture. If you don't do your job well, then you will feel this shame and this guilt and people will write you off to the point where the jailer thought, if I didn't do my job well, the only way out was to take my own life. And set Paul. Paul goes, whoa, don't, whoa, put the sword down. We're still here. How selfless. How loving. Here's Paul and Silas. They're just singing, praising God. They're having church right in the middle of this prison. And this happens. The jailer's hearing all of this. 
And then when they have a chance to really show what they believe, instead of running out, knowing what would happen to this jailer if they left, what do they do? They stay. Look what happens. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all those in his household. Here's Paul and Silas. They could have left, but they stayed. And the jailer recognized this isn't something they just said or something they sing. It's something that they lived. They lived selflessly. It cost them something. He didn't know if they would just put him back in jail. But he wanted to live out his true faith. And in so happens, the jailer, he says, you are different. I want to know what's behind what you were singing. And he says, how do I be saved? Every single day, you and I, we walk into our workplaces. We walk into stores. We're interacting with our schools pretty soon. You can say it. You can sing it. But do you live it? If you and I get to the point where people know you go to church, but when it costs you something, when you can live selflessly, when you do something to help others more than it helps yourself, this could be the very response that someone says to you. What church do you go to? How do I know your God? What is it that you believe? It happens all the time. And I don't think it happens a lot of times in this culture because we as Christians say something and we don't live it out. That's called hypocrisy. A lot of Christians say something and they come to church, but they don't live it out like this. We're not selfless. We're selfish in the way we live. But if we live in this way, you just never know what could happen. And the jailer, he witnessed the selflessness of Paul and Silas. And he fell down saying, I want to know what you know. And he goes, you just got to believe in Jesus. Not only does he believe in Jesus, his whole household believes in Jesus. Verse 33 says, even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Wow. Think about this. The jailer, he comes to know Jesus, and now he wants to serve others. That's what happens. We're not serving others. Do we really know Jesus? I mean, right away, you see it. Then he and everyone in his household were baptized immediately. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them. His entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. And that, my friends, is the story of the first three converts of the Philippian church. It's a ragtag group of people, people that you probably wouldn't put together. But this church is so impactful, not just in the world, but in Paul's life. If you go through the book of Philippians, circle every time you read the word joy, you'll circle it 16 times. Because Paul has so much joy that has come from these people in the church. So Paul, he's writing this letter to the Philippians. He's writing his greetings. He's writing his love. And then we get to verse 6. I'm just telling you, you are here for a reason today. And I don't use those words lightly. I don't like cliches. But I'm telling you, for this next verse alone, to hear it, you are here today for a reason. And that reason is this. This is the only thing I care that you remember. God is not done with you. I believe this so much. I want you to repeat after me. You may think that's corny. That's fine. But this is such a... I want you to say, God is not done with me. Say it. 
God is not done with me. Here's how we know this. Here is Paul. He's writing to these new converts, reminding them how much he loves them. And then Paul says this in verse 6. And I am certain, certain that God, who began this good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Will you say this with me out loud? And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Say it one more time with me. And I am certain that God, who began this good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Imagine, imagine the Philippians reading this. Imagine Lydia reading this. Imagine the girl that was enslaved reading this. Imagine the jailer reading this. Imagine other believers reading this. That this God who I just got to know, this God who I'm living for, he's not finished with me. They had struggles just like you and I have struggles. Some of them may went back to certain patterns and habits that they had even before they knew Jesus. But when they read this aloud because they didn't have what we had, they had a one letter and then they would just read it over and over again out loud and they kept reading this verse over and over again. This God who began a good work in you will continue, will continue this work within you. Paul, he says, I am certain. Another way to translate that word is I'm convicted. I'm convinced by it. It's as if that word, you gather all the evidence. You're in a, you're in a trial and you're gathering all the evidence. And you're looking to see what you believe. And you look at the evidence and you look what's everything before you. And it, you are so convinced by it. You are so certain by it that you can make a judgment based on what's there. And Paul, he's saying, I've seen it all. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in your life. I've seen it in others. I am so convinced that God who began a good work. This is key. Whether you in this room profess to know Jesus and it happened at an early age when you were five years old and your parents helped pray Christ into your life or you were older and you had this crazy life story and somehow God found you when you were almost dead. However that is, it was God who began the good work in you. It was God who found you. It was God who brought you to himself. It was God that used Paul to take him to Lydia's Bible study. It was God who used Paul to meet this woman who's enslaved. It was God who had Paul go to jail so this jailer could know him. None of them were looking for God. None of them were looking for Jesus. Jesus found them. It was God who began a good work in you. That grace that rescued you then is the same grace that you have now. You cannot out-sin God's great love for you. If he began the work in you, you can't lose that work. He will continue it on. Because it's his work in you, not yours. Now, you and I, we have a role to play. Yes, we, we, we go to church to learn about him, and we read the scriptures, and we pray. But I just know so many Christ followers who do those things, and they look at their lives, and they're like, man, I'm never going to change. Or, or, man, my spouse is never going to change. But you know what? This world is just, with Christ, it's one step forward, oftentimes five steps back. But it's always that step forward. He will carry you to that. I heard this great story about Billy 
and Ruth Graham. They were traveling one day and they were going through a construction site and we know how that can feel when we're just driving and driving through constructions and it can be frustrating and at the end it said this, construction complete, thank you for your patience. And Ruth leaned over to Billy and said, I want that on my tombstone. (laughs) And what I love about that to me is I think of Billy and Ruth Graham. I think of them here and like Pastor Jay's here and I'm like way down here. And yet Ruth says, my whole life I'm under construction. Sometimes it doesn't look like it's getting very far, but it's getting closer and closer and closer to completion. And that work doesn't end until we're dead. That's why it's so good for us to be patient with each other as we grow in Christ. You may see something in me and you're just like, how is Eric still doing that? Oh, that was my wife that said that. Hold on a second. Um, oh. But seriously, like, how does he, how does he do that? Why, why does he keep doing this stuff? He, he knows better than that. And you're right, I do. And so thank you for your patience because I'm under construction. I believe in a Jesus who rescued me and he's continuing to rescue me every single day until it's, it's complete. And I may look good on this day and other days I may not. Same with you. We all want to change our spouse. We all want to change our kids. We all want to change other people. But they are under construction just like you are. And the God who began a good work in them will continue it. You don't have to do the work. Let God do it. Be an encourager of that work. Be patient with God, with them in that work. Do you think someone's going to come to know Jesus and grow in Jesus if you nag them or judge them or convict them or guilt them all the time? No. The best way that we grow is through unconditional love. That's what God gives us and we're in construction mode all the way to the end. And then someday, someday, maybe you're dead, maybe you're not. You look and you say, this God who began this work in me to help me overcome my pornography addiction, help me overcome my anger, help me come over my materialism, help me come over all of these things. This God, I'm a step further, I'm a step further, I'm a step further. Until finally, until finally, you and I are with God forever. Either he comes for us, Paul says, or we go to him. And it'll be complete. God is patient with us. God is continuing the work he started in you. The grace that he imparted the day you said yes to him is the same grace he gives you every day. And maybe someday you'll look back and say, wow, look at what he's doing in me. Let me end with this story. Yesterday, my my wife and I, we took our kids to my in-law's camper out in Clyde. And my boys, they went to uh, Beulah Beach for a camp all week, and they were tired. And my brother-in-law, he reached out and said, hey, let me take the boys golfing and fishing. And we almost said no because we knew how tired they were, but we still let them go. And we should have probably followed our parental instincts because it didn't go the greatest. They came back, and right when my son Micah saw me, it was Meltdown City. And Micah has the greatest heart in the world, and he's so emotional for the good, but those same emotions that are for the good are also for the bad. (laughs) And he just completely melts down over something little, because that's what happens, right? It's always a little thing, and he's just melting down, melting down, melting down. Well, I told him, I said, Micah, if you don't stop, we're going home. And oftentimes, we as parents, we threaten that, but we really don't actually do it. Well, this time, I was calm, and I said, Mike, if you do it again, we're going home. He did it again. I said, let's go, everyone in the car. Well, after like 20 minutes of fighting, 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 
We're getting all the kids in the car, and Micah, he comes up, and he's trying to open my door, and I have it closed. I'm trying to keep it closed because I don't want the cops called on me. And he, he starts, like, preaching at me. He's like, well, God would want you to give me a second chance. And I'm like, well, I'm not God. So he's like, but yeah, so? He's like, you're supposed to do this. He's like trying to guilt me. I'm like, no. And he's like, and he just, he's still crying. He's like, fine. He's like, if you want to listen to the devil, go ahead. And I'm like, and I'm just sitting there. I'm calm. Well, my wife's really calm in the situation. She turned back. She goes, he's not listening to the devil. You're listening to the devil. You know, it was like getting crazy. It's getting wild up in our car. We finally go. Somehow, the grace of God, I don't lose it on him. We get home. Paula puts him to bed this morning before I'm leaving. Paula said, hey, Micah wanted me to tell you thank you. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, because usually you threatened to take him home, but you did this time. And he said, tell dad good job. He, <laughs> then he said this. He goes, the devil wasn't in him. He was in me. He listened to God. <laughs> I know. Trust me. Now, I tell you that story. I tell you that story because you may come to my house tonight and you may see the devil is in dad tonight. I don't know. <laughs> but so often I fail as a dad in those situations. I will lose it more than they lose it on me. And I say things and I do things that I regret. But in that moment, I felt this verse to come true. I may go backwards the next few days, so check in on me if you want. But for that moment, I saw God's work in me as a dad because I just want to be patient more. He somehow miraculously helped me to get to that point, and he'll continue to do it no matter how many times I step back. He will do that with you. He will do that with you. And he'll do that with some of your family and friends who may not follow Jesus anymore. He began a good work in them, and he'll continue it. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for those in this room who just feel discouraged this morning, feel like me often, who profess you to be our Savior, and then our actions just don't speak it. Pray for those who are discouraged parents, discouraged spouses, discouraged coworkers. They feel, God, that you're giving up on them because truly they're giving up on themselves. I pray, God, that Philippians 1.6, they would remember that time that you rescued them is the same rescuing that you do every single day. And I pray for our family and friends, some of our own kids and grandkids who don't know you or they profess to know you and they're not finding you anymore. Would they be encouraged that you who began a good work in them will, will, will do, continue to do the work in them. May we be encouraged today by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday.